Hello and welcome back to the Muscle Engineer Podcast. I am, as always, your host, Sotak Andre, and you're listening to episode 39, in which I welcome back my old friend, Gary McGowan, aka Skinny Gaz. Gary has been previously on the podcast. In fact, he's been one of the very first guest I invited on, he's been on episode 2, which I would recommend to listen to. Now, I think since then, he might have updated uh, his views on some of those uh, concepts we discussed there about fat loss, but I think it's still a very much a very valuable episode to listen to. Now, this time around, we talked about uh, training-related topics. We went into his background in physiotherapy then we started some good old mid busting which even though i'm not a biggest fan of is still needed i think uh, we addressed or some of the very popular physiotherapy implements or recovery methods or whatever you want to call them such as you know foam rolling cupping and other similar stuff we tackled the need or utility of heel elevation during squats and we also addressed this uh, claim that has been made by some people in the industry which is that cervical extension shuts off the glutes during deadlifts or squats so if you want to find out whether that really is true or not stick around until the end of the episode. And with that, let's get into episode 39 of the Muscle Engineer Podcast with Gary McGowan. Gary, it's been way too long, man. How are you? I'm very good, man. Yeah, I've been I've been putting off getting this podcast on for probably half a year by now. So I'm glad we eventually got around to it. No worries. Um, you know, at the episode we did like two years ago, we still very much relevant and very much applicable so sure. i would direct anyone who hasn't listened to that episode to also check that out because it's extremely valuable um but uh i think since then maybe i should call you like dr gary or is that not not yet not yet give me about four years and then you can you can bring out the the doctor <laughs> right because so you finished doctor physiotherapy yeah, but we're not that we're not that pretentious here in Ireland, you know. In in the US, the like physios like to call themselves doctors, like doctor of physical therapy. But no, in in Ireland, we don't do that. In Ireland, a physiotherapist is a physiotherapist, and like the only the only real doctors are you know medical doctors and people who obviously have PhDs. So um, it's a bit different in Ireland. So same qualification, but we don't call ourselves doctors. <laughs> yeah. So you basically, you got pissed and you said, you know what, fuck you guys. If you don't want to call me doctor, because I have a <laughs> physical therapy, then I'm just going to do the actual doctor stuff and you will have no choice. Yeah, that's pretty much it. So for, yeah, I just, I just started, just started medicine there four or five weeks ago, five weeks ago. Um, so enjoying that so far. All good. Uh, medical school is four years because over here it's six. No, it's it's actually five years here normally. Um, so there's what there's there's dem and there's gem. So dem is direct entry medicine. So that would be if you do it after secondary school. Um, so it's five years then. Whereas if you already have a degree, you do graduate entry medicine, um, and that's a bit more fast tracked, a bit more cramped together. So that's a four year course, and that and that's the one I'm doing. Got it. Got it. Okay. So 
I'm curious, like maybe we can allocate a bit of time to talk about the physiotherapy education and what it entails and perhaps what were some of the likes, dislikes, uh, what was your overall experience with it? Yeah, so yeah, my, my experience with physio- physiotherapy education had a lot of a lot of pros and a lot of cons. So I'll start with the positive stuff. Some of the positive stuff was that I was very fortunate to have at least for a very brief period of time, a number of lecturers who really did influence uh, the thought process that I actually developed over time. Um, there was t- two people in particular, um, Dr. Kieran O'Sullivan and Dr. Mary O'Keefe. So both of those individuals um, would be very well known within the world of um, pain and particularly particularly low back pain. Um, I think both have done very important work there and they did a lot to foster a mindset in me of being very critical about the things that we hear about pain about a lot of the common narratives um, related to things like posture and you know uh, muscle imbalances and you know all, all those sorts of things that you hear people talk about as being caused causal when it comes to pain like you know certain muscles being switched off and, and all that sort of stuff and and they really were the ones that put me on to thinking much deeper about pain about some of the psychosocial factors about the neurobiology of pain and all that sort of stuff so i did have a po- very positive experience from that perspective the other very positive thing about physiotherapy education is that you get a thousand hours of, of hands-on practical experience. Um, um, I mean, hands-on figuratively, like not literally. <laughs> a lot of it is hands-off. But what I mean, what, what I mean by that is that you know you have the opportunity to work in a hospital environment, in a more outpatient clinical environment, um, in you know the community. So I had a lot of really, really valuable learning experiences that you couldn't get from the classroom, and that has definitely shaped me as a person, even as a trainer. It helps me work better with my clients um, online and communicate better a lot of the soft skills so lots of positive experiences in terms of some of the more um, negative experiences or things that I feel were somewhat insufficient one of one of my biggest critiques of physiotherapy education would be probably the well firstly probably the lack of emphasis on learning deeper like about pain itself as I said I was very fortunate to have a number of lecturers who kind of put me on that path but I think like that is would be one of the deficits of physiotherapy education in general is that most of the research would support the idea that physiotherapy students tend to have a relatively poor understanding of some of the things they should know um, about pain um, and that was actually part of my final year project so we did a lot of, of reading in that area and there's definitely room for improvement the other thing would be the approach to education around exercise like one of the things that that physiotherapists will will say or or claim is that you know they're the that we're the the clinical exercise specialists you know that we're the ones that are really in control of prescribing exercise within the context of health and disease but there's actually there's a lot of talk but very little action given to proper education around exercise one example would be the removal of biomechanics and the reduction of exercise physiology education um, within the curriculum in the university that I I studied in. Um, So I found that interesting because like personally I find biomechanics to be an absolutely core subject for anyone who's trying to understand exercise um, even if it's just qualitative mechanics, exercise mechanics. Um, I think it's important. I think you also have to understand the physiology of exercise quite well. And then you also have to understand the practice of exercise. And one of the things that is apparent is that lots of physios don't actually train themselves. Um, Lots of people don't know basic strength and conditioning principles. 
And I think without that foundation, it's very difficult to consider yourself to be an exercise specialist. So, so yeah, um, in summary, I got a lot out of my physiotherapy education. I think there's a lot, lot of positives to the course that I did and to a lot of courses. I think it lays a, a good foundation, especially in terms of developing a lot of the soft skills in practice. But I do think there's room for improvement for sure. Hmm. Yeah, I think I think that saying can be said for like pretty much pretty much any course. Exactly. <laughs> that was I was going yeah. to say that uh, I'm, right now I'm trying to sort of make more acquaintances in the local realm because as you probably can imagine, like most of my code friends or industry people are not from here and yeah. basically like I was talking to some dietitians and most like all of them basically who are like up to date and you know sane basically <laughs> have learned stuff outside of the like, of the classroom like they 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 don't have the knowledge that they do um, due to the three-year education of being a dietitian so it's uh, it is what it is I guess it just you know, like school or education, like college should make you learn or it's the primary purpose should be to teach you how to think, yes, not just shove information down, down your throat. And I, I'm afraid that in Romania, for sure, it's very much still the same. Like you just, you are spoon fed some information, then you're expected to uh, regurgitate, regurgitate it, regurgitate it on a test and that's pretty much how you're graded so it's uh, very unfortunate in my opinion but yes i would i would agree with you that like fundamentally the purpose of university should be to build people who are able to think who are able to to read to write to ask good questions um to differentiate between like scientific and pseudoscientific claims um and i think that's a, a transferable skill beyond just the sciences you know um and to identify you know when it when a claim is bullshit to understand the reasoning process that goes into making a decision all those sorts of soft skills um are really what are transferable in all areas of life and hence i agree with you that they should be a core focus in university speaking of critical thinking i want to get into some particular physiotherapy methods and let me know if that's not the correct wording like you know foam rolling cupping and that sort of stuff but uh, first i want to address this notion that came up during conversation with someone at my gym Uh, we were talking about foam rolling specifically and he was saying that you know it's going to do this and it's going to do that and i was trying to tell him that there's not really much evidence for the claims he was making and he brought up this concept that uh, high-level athletes are doing it. So obviously, because they are high-level athletes and like they are in the best in the world, um, I'm particularly thinking of UFC fighter because that's something I follow like regularly, and I see many, many people, uh, athletes, fighters in the cage, like with copying marks on their backs. And he, he, this guy I was talking to brought up this notion that, you know, if they are doing it, then it must be good because if they are like highest level, if it wasn't good that they wouldn't be doing it. And I sort of took issue with this concept that, you know, the best athletes in the world are also sort of the best people to evaluate critically the methods they are uh subjecting themselves to like what do you think about this notion because i'm sure many people share the same view like if they see like i don't know their favorite athlete doing a thing that they would be like you know if they are doing it and they are the best in the world like how can i not do it or how can it not benefit me yeah like a good example of that would be 
at the last Olympics, Michael Phelps was, you know, made all the front lines because front line headlines because he he essentially had been getting a lot of cupping. So he had lots of cupping marks going into his swimming races. And obviously, like, that's a big win for anyone who is practicing um, using cupping because, like, clearly swimming is a sport where that's going to be very visible and millions and millions of people are going to be watching that. Um, but to assume that because a high-level athlete does something that that is inherently beneficial, that, like, that, that is a ridiculous assumption. And, like, you should really be seeking to take your reasoning process beyond that point because athletes do a lot of things you know and that's the thing with athletes is that if if you're if you if you take someone who's trying to get every last 0.0001% out of their performance then once something is not directly harmful they're essentially going to throw everything at at themselves to potentially lead to a performance improvement like even with the knowledge that some of it mightn't you know work very well you know, so they're going to use every recovery modality. They're going to use every little nutrition hack they can. They're going to use, you know, foam rolling. They're going to they're going to do cupping. They're going to have recovery pants on. They're going to wear compression garments. They're going to do everything they possibly can to eke out every last zero point zero zero one percent. And they're not seeking scientific evidence to to prove that a lot of the time. Like often, what they're they're being suggested, like a coach will suggest it, and the coach mightn't have necessarily read the evidence. And then they're like, all right, do, do, would, you have the, would you have the time to be able to implement this intervention? And if the person has the time to implement that intervention and there's no significant risk associated with it, then the, there's either some sort of benefit or it's neutral. So even in that context, if, if Michael Phelps happened to get cupping and he got some placebo benefit out of it, for example, if he, if he just... If, he was, if it was suggested to him that he was going to get a performance benefit and he felt more confident going into a race after that, and he was like, yeah, good, you know, my shoulder, um, I've sorted that out, then that is a positive for him because placebo is worth it in that case because cost is not an issue, you know, and it's all solely about performance. But for the average person, you shouldn't be thinking in that, in that exact same, you know, frame of mind because for you, even if you get a 0.0001% improvement in performance um, in one particular instance that is the result of, let's say, placebo effects, then that doesn't matter. You know, that, like, that actually doesn't matter to you. So you have to think totally differently about athletes and about everyday people you know, like, and most of the people you see in the gym every day. Um, and even if there are benefits to any intervention, it might be the case that the benefits do not outweigh, one, the risks, or two, the costs so you actually have to weigh that up. Like, for example, if it is the case that when you do, um, when you get a massage, right? If you get a massage twice per week, you feel a little bit better going into your workouts and you give them a bit more effort, you feel a bit more recovered, whatever. But if you are paying 100 euros a week, then that that minor difference in terms of your your affect or your mood going into the work going into the workout, even if it's improved, might not be worth the cost that you're actually undertaking to to get that intervention um do you get what i mean yeah for sure there's always you know i really like i, I don't know if you've seen it, valentin tambozi had this point a while back and it's something that is, is very obvious but it's it was not very nicely worded from him he was saying that every yes is a no 
Like, you know, if you say yes to a thing, you're probably saying no to like 10 different things. And people just sort of don't realize this. Like, <laughs> they have sort of this, this, this thing, like, I'm sure this cognitive dissonance in their heads, like, uh, I, face, I have faced this with like clients, like they come in and they want this result, but basically they want to change anything. And I'm like, you know, uh, by definition, if you want something different than what you've been doing, you also have to put in something different than what you've been doing up, up until this point. Like, that's how it works. So, um, yeah, 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 I agree. Um, another um, sort of consequence of that discussion was, or sort of a follow-up, or I tried bringing up some uh, similar points to him. And uh, he he said something to, about foam rolling and that uh, he feels better if he does it. And I was like, that's awesome. But you don't need anything more fancy than that to justify that. You don't need to come up with these elaborate explanations. Just say that I do this because it yes. makes me feel better. And that's perfectly uh, sufficient for me. Oh, yeah. And another thing that we then started talking about uh, from from Rolling, I think it was um, chiropractic. And he was. I was telling him that that's basically a lot of bullshit. And he was like, you know, I, I want to go and see for myself. And I was I was trying to tell him that, you know, if you expect something to help, if you go into an intervention expecting uh, it to improve your outcome, the outcome you're looking for, it probably will just because you went into it with that expectation. Can you talk about this a bit? Because I, I remember you writing some some posts about it. Like I guess the one thing, the one key point to to make here is that when we talk about chiropractic, like we can't necessarily just uh, paint the whole profession um, with one brush. So, like particularly, I guess what we're talking about here is the chiropractic care that people are typically exposed to online in videos, such as like the back cracking stuff that you see. Mm-hmm. You know, we're we're yeah. both on the same page there. Um, so that's what we're talking about here. And like one of the things that you see in in the research when it comes to these sort of uh, spinal manipulations or thrusts is that the benefits again are pretty much non-specific. And and what that means is that someone may indeed have the outcome of a little bit less pain after these interventions but it is not necessarily because anything has been realigned or something was out of place and so that's the key distinction is that you can have a positive outcome without it necessarily being the mechanism that you think was responsible Um, but so so that's what you see is that if you if you were to do some sort of spinal manipulation at let's say the lumbar spine um, and then you test the you test someone's uh tolerance for pain let's say in a different area of the spine or a different area of the body they're going to have basically less pain you could say um, in other areas of the body and not just that local area so it's not a local specific effect it's a non-specific more general effect that the person's actually experiencing so the reason that that is important is because right you can play devil's advocate and you can say oh it doesn't matter once there's a benefit it doesn't matter but it does matter because again there's there's a there's a story or a narrative that goes along with every intervention. So if someone said to me, all right, Gary, I want to go to my local chiropractor and I want to get this spinal manipulation done, I'm fully aware that nothing is being necessarily realigned or adjusted and that most of the benefits are going to be non-specific, but it's going to make me feel better and I'm happy to, you know, take that expense on the chin. I'd be like, all right, like that's probably not the 
best way of going about your life, but do what you want. You know, <laughs> you do you. Do you. Like, that's fine with me. But where I see the harm is when someone thinks that I need to go and see my chiropractor because my spine is out of alignment and I need to get my spine put back in place or my pelvis put back in place so that I can go about my life. Because that is then facilitating some sort of dependence on another individual, a profession, an intervention to essentially be healthy and to have your standard level of well-being. So that's a problem. But there's also the problem that the person believes that their body is broken and that it needs to be fixed before they can be quote unquote normal or before they can get rid of their pain, which is very often not the case. So that's where I would have a lot of reservations about that. And obviously the third reservation would be the fact that someone is paying for something on the basis of a narrative that is untrue. And Mm. that for me is is just it's it's unethical um i don't see that as being on i don't see that as being ethical i think as a practitioner if you're administering an intervention and you're you're honestly saying look the benefits here are non-specific i'm not we can't be entirely sure of why these improvements are taking place but some people tend to feel better after if you're disclosing that that's ethical to me but if you're giving someone a false narrative telling them something that's untrue um even if there are benefits out the other side placebo related benefits i consider that to be unethical um but ethics is a very um subjective personal discussion so like you can you can argue all day back and forth about that and we might get nowhere you know what i took issue with it with when i was having the discussion is that this guy was was not going into it the way you described it. Like, you know, I'm just, I'm not respecting too much. I'm just going to go in just to, because they feel good. He was saying that they can, I don't know, like realign a bone by pressing in on it or by popping or moving this stuff. Like, and that's, that's sort of the, the, the stuff I start to get issue with. Not to mention like the financial costs, because obviously this is not really cheap stuff. And like you said yourself, if you start becoming reliant on it and you start having these narratives in your head that, oh my God, um, I will not be healthy or normal without it, then it starts becoming really problematic. Uh, I was listening to Evander Holyfield on the Joe Rogan uh, podcast, and he said something very interesting at one point. He said that when he was like poor or when he wasn't such well-known, so well-known, um, he didn't really go do like any of these fancy interventions because he said that he doesn't he didn't want to do like anything he couldn't af- afford long term because then he'll start creating these narratives in his head that you know I went into this chiropractic once he used this specific example I went to that in- went into it once but now I cannot afford it any longer and now I'm going to justify during a fight if I lose that oh my god. I lost because I didn't go in to, you know, to pop my neck or whatever. I thought it was a very, very interesting point of view. Very, very key point. Um, and, and I think I think that's, that's like really important because like what, what can actually happen? And, and this is a broader, of course, beyond just rehab stuff is you end up with this sort of lifestyle creep, you know, like I, or, or you, you, you see it like training career creep, you could call it. You see... When people begin to, to train and take the training more and more seriously, what they what you see over a number of years is they develop more and more things that they become dependent on, and they're like, "All right, I have this specific pre-training routine. I need to, this mobility routine. I need to wear, you know, these shoes. I need to have my straps with me. I need to make sure that I've done 
my foam rolling, I need to release this. And, you know, you can see where I'm going. You've got all these countless things that someone needs to partake mm. in before they can train or consider the training session to be effective. Whereas if you think back to your early days in the gym, you show up, man, you're wearing like some shorts that you've had since you were 10 and <laughs> you're just, yeah. you're rocking in and you're going beast mode. And like, you don't even think about any of those things. So for me, like generally in life, I try to adopt the philosophy where I want to have dependence on as little things as possible yes. to get work done, um, whether that be in the gym, whether that be life in general, or whether it be moving away from a painful experience or rehabilitation. Like you want to be as self-sufficient as you possibly can in any area of life um, because you see that all the time with students and stuff. If they're not in the perfect environment with their perfect study routine, they just don't study. Um, so you can see how this generalizes a little bit more and you see it with people who are, you know, they work online and they can only work in a particular place and with particular circumstances. And that can really hinder your ability to move forward in life because you want to be able to act in the world, to be yourself, best self, independent of what is going on around you. Um, at least that's my personal philosophy. And I think it's a much better way of operating in the world than being dependent on things. Yeah, yeah. I think that covers or sums up all of these interventions very nicely. Um, Andy Galpin has put it in a nice way. I'm sure you've heard it. He said that you're either adapting to something or you're optimizing something. And neither one of those is wrong or right. It's it's more appropriate in any particular context. You just have to be aware of which one you're doing. And the stuff you're telling or stuff you're referencing is adapting. And that means that you have to be uncomfortable or expose yourself to many different uh, stimuli or variables. And the opposite, complete opposite of that is optimizing when you very pretty much try to control everything and you try to nail a particular, or you try to um, get the maximum in a particular, from a particular outcome and obviously both of those have merit and it's very important to not confuse the two yeah hey guys i interrupt the episode to remind you that as much as i love making these episodes they do not pay the bills coaching does for me so if you'd be interested in working with me in a one-to-one fashion i also offer online coaching for a limited number of clients interested in uh, body composition optimization so if you'd like to lose fat, build muscle, or any combination of the two, then uh, don't hesitate to reach out to me via an email. My email address is always in the description of these episodes, and we can chat further from there. I am also available for 30 or 60-minute consultations for people who are not quite ready to invest into a full-on coach just yet. Thank you, and let's continue the episode. All right, so let's move on to another topic I wanted to uh, bring up today. And that is uh, heel elevation during squats, because once again, that seems to be a very uh, polarizing topic. Um, I particularly will admit I have a bias for heel elevation. I like them. Um, Then there are others who do not. Manu Hanselmans is very vocal critic of it. He had a, a particular Instagram post a while ago that... I did not agree with and I don't want to throw him under any metaphorical bus it's just he's an example that people will recognize and I'm sure that his post has has had a, a large reach so I think it's it was a public post uh, afterwards I think it's it's fine if we bring it up um he was 
I don't want to misquote him. I didn't look it up yet. Or didn't look it up right now. So I'm just going off of memory here. But I think he said something to the effect of if you have to use heal elevation that you're pretty much uh, compensating for poor technique and you don't know how to squat. And uh, that uh, everyone should just, you know, learn how to squat and ditch the ditch the uh, heel elevation and you know I find this whole argument fascinating like it's I don't know it's cognitive dissonance of what it is but people in the fitness industry can be so flexible and open in certain areas like you know they would admit that you have to customize your macros and your calorie intake and uh, you know you probably should like select uh, some exercises that fit your body better than others but Heaven forbid you try to optimize a technique in a given exercise. If you try to use something like heel elevation to better fit the exercise to your body, and people just lose their minds. I don't know how it, how they can be so close-minded when it comes to certain things, and so open-minded when it comes to others. So, what the hell is up with this heel elevation stuff? Um, <laughs> do you really think that is just you know people who use it are just compensating for poor technique? Yeah, so like I, I, I remember when Menno, Menno shared that. That was see, I didn't even realize this was a controversial topic. Like I just assumed that like, yeah, most people agree like heel elevation is a tool in the toolbox. Like so, I find it funny when these things end up being controversial. Um, but yeah, like that that was a, a twenty nineteen study that Menno shared. Um, and like first, like first things first, like one study is like it, it, the way that that study was portrayed from my perspective was as if that was the only study on that topic. It's not, you know, other studies have shown um, opposite effects showing that, you know, there are significant effects on the way that the ankle, the knee, the hip um, and the trunk move um, during some sort of squatting variation. So we can't necessarily assume that that study is the one that we should rely on, the others are ones that we shouldn't rely on. So but but it, it, there's actually more of it, an issue to to come to here, and that's the fact that what what one suggests in theory and what happens in the real world when we're like talking about human behavior are not necessarily the same things. And what I mean by that is that if if for example, Sotek, right, you get one of your clients in today who's never worn weightlifting shoes for squatting. And for the listeners, like weightlifting shoes, basically their main characteristic is that they have a heel elevation so for if you give one of your clients uh, a weightlifting shoe um, and you just tell them all right you know squat they might not know or they might not understand the actual goal to now push their knees forward a bit more to try and stay a bit more upright to try and maximize the amount of ankle movement that takes place they might not actually understand that that is that is now what they're trying to achieve. And they might know exactly how to coordinate that movement because up to this point, they've only been squatting in a different manner. So if you if you are an individual who starts to use a heel elevation, but you don't actually change the way that you approach your squat, the cues that you use, um, you know, your actual focus point, your focal points, your intent, then we shouldn't necessarily to see expect to see changes in the way the joints are moving um, and potentially muscular outcomes if we're not actually using the tool to the best, um, like the, the best that you can, um, like one example would be, I know you're, you're a fan of like doing like Smith machine, Smith machine squats. And when you do them, you normally try and stay really upright. Um, it's very clear that your intent is right. Let's get these knees forward as much as you possibly can. All right. So that it's clear that that is your intent, but 
you could just as easily not use that heel elevation to the full to the best of your ability if you were to just do that same squat but sit back loads okay so that's then a different movement and there's different forces involved so we shouldn't just assume that the heel elevation is going to lead to certain effects if it's not being manifested in terms of how the joints are actually moving um, and changing the way the forces are distributed during the exercise so that's the caveat that you always need to understand when we're looking at like the way an intervention is implemented in research there's the implement in there's the implementation of the tool and there's the actual behavior that follows in this case the individuals in that study may not have actually changed their squat not just because they weren't told to uh, or not just because they the heel elevation does nothing but potentially because they didn't adjust their cueing in the way that they were actually approaching the squat another example would be if you were to do a nutrition study and i and like the intervention is uh let's say uh low carbohydrate dieting and the the individuals in the study you know they were they were told right you're all going to go on a low carbohydrate diet here's what a low carbohydrate diet looks like go and execute it what matters in that study is not that advice what matters is the adherence and the execution thereafter so if we were to come to the end of that study and we saw that all right the subjects didn't lose weight at all um even though they were supposedly in a calorie deficit and so low carbohydrate dieting and reducing your calories doesn't work like we could not conclude that without knowing that there was full adherence to that diet and in this case it's the same thing with the heel elevation we cannot con conclude that the heel elevation has no meaningful effect if we don't know that the person has used that to the fullest of their ability. Now, to get back to the initial question that you actually asked, is this a case of someone just not learning how to squat properly? Like, not necessarily, okay? Like, if that's the case, then why not go tell every Olympic weightlifter ever to just, like, learn to squat, bro, you know, and um, that's not, that's not something that, that I would, like, I understand Menno's point, I understand the fact that he's saying that we shouldn't rely on loads of equipment as a crutch if we're not able to lift well, and I think that's a fair point in some cases, but in this case, if someone is using the, a heel elevation, whether it be through a wedge or through a weightlifting shoe, to improve something in a specific manner, for example, all right, I want to be able to stay more upright in my squat so I can uh, get into deeper knee flexion and they're the adaptations that I'm looking for, then that's totally fine. If someone is saying like, I want to be able to clean and that requires me to stay more upright during my squat, um, then again, that's totally fine. They're using that tool quite specifically. Um, so like, even, even if it is the case that's, that someone can if you can get let's say an extra five to ten degrees of ankle dorsiflexion by elevating your heels there's no guarantee that quote-unquote learning to squat is going to actually give you that um, someone might already know how to squat and we have to appreciate inter-individual differences in how people squat um, the, the ability of one person to squat deep in an upright position is going to vary massively depending on like their femur stature ratio for example and that doesn't just vary between like individuals within a group it also varies between like your race you know careful now careful <laughs> <laughs> no but like there's there's big differences in how like if you look at chinese weightlifters like look at their characteristics look at their femur to stature ratio what you'll see is that like a, a lot of asian populations will have longer torsos and shorter shorter legs and particularly shorter femurs that changes the way that you approach the squat if you're someone that is like 
six foot five and you've got like the longest legs in the world and it looks like someone cut half your torso off like saying that you just need to learn to squat is just not enough like you're not going to be able to replicate the squat of that chinese weightlifter or that bulgarian weightlifter or whoever it is that happens to have been selected based on their characteristics to partake in this activity so yeah that would be my perspective on that the reason i use them and the reason most people use them is just to be able to squat deeper in a more upright way uh, in a way that is perhaps less uh, fatiguing for the lower back and simply more um, stimulating for the quadriceps and this is something that again i don't really agree and i know that there are people who like greg wrote an excellent article about it like you know forces during the squat and that sort of stuff and he's more he's definitely smarter than me but um i think there is something to be said for the uh subjective experience like um pretty much everyone who uses a weightlifting shoe will tell you that they feel it in like leg presses, hex, regular squats, they feel it more in their quads, less in their lower back, less so in their glutes. Um, I find it really hard to imagine that, you know, the typical Instagram fit chick type uh, squat where they, you know, they... I, I, <laughs> at one point I called it a glory horse squat, like basically you're trying to move your butt back towards uh, um, stuff coming out of a glory hole. If you don't know what I is, look it up. And... Uh, <laughs> That's basically the way like, most women squat if they are not really instructed otherwise. And I find it hard to imagine that that would be very or would be identical as far as squat simulation to a deep, uh, more upright squat. Like, um, it's just hard to, to imagine that. Yeah. And, and to be fair, I think to give credit to like Greg's article, like he's he's making a good point and i think he's he's his his point in that article about like the difference between high and low bar yeah he's making the case for like a lombard's paradox like fundamentally like he's saying that you know the difference between like shoving your knees forward loads and sitting back more is not as significant as we would expect if the lower body didn't function the way that it is he does make some comments in that article about how um like you would see some degree of a difference if you're like comparing like a really really upright deep squat versus a classic kind of west side type squat where you're like you're trying to make it as quote-unquote hip dominant as possible so what i would say is that like there's a lot of, of merit to, to what greg is saying in terms of saying that uh the dichotomy between a hip versus knee dominant squat um is not as clear-cut as people make it out to be um having said that i don't think we can conclude that it that it's just the same if you just sit back versus let your knees letting your knees go totally forward um because i don't think we have the the outcome based evidence to suggest that is the case and i think we also have to appreciate that people like you you one of the things i always say to myself is like what is the limiting factor to performance in any given exercise so for example when i when i do when i do squats um, the limiting factor for me is is like in terms of accumulating enough volume and coming back into the next section session is the ability of my adductors to handle load um, and that's particularly the case if i do that kind of more quote-unquote hip dominant squat variation so my adductors like feel like they just get hammered so for me then to come back into the next session um my quads probably haven't taken as much load my adductors are going to be the limiting factor to recovery so if i was to do some sort of intervention like a 
trying to stay far more upright like for example a front squat variation where my knees are going far more forward um, with a heel elevation I would be hard pressed to suggest that the outcomes are going to be the exact same between those two um, exercises um, but again like I mean when we talk about exercise we're often trying to make inferences based on theory and based on the experiences that people are having we don't actually have like a lot of long-term research on like one exercise versus another so i think it's really hard to have any really hard stance on these topics um and i think that there's a lot to be said for solely trying to improve the exercise experience for people um like for example if you find that so tech like when you do a heel elevated squat that you know you feel you feel it more in your legs and your lower back isn't as much of a limiting factor and you enjoy squatting more then for me that is enough to suggest that that's a useful intervention you know again like you have to think about what the narrative is around that what you wouldn't want to do is say you need to squat like this because if you feel in your lower back that's really dangerous and you're going to hurt your back but if you separate it from that narrative and you're saying look i'm glad that squatting feels better um are you looking forward to squatting more now and um, you probably would and um, then that for me is a win you know i obviously don't use that sort of wording but simply if someone tells me that i feel it more in the lower back I just don't like that because it's not really productive for our goals. Like, no one's goal is to make my lower back feel as tired as possible. (laughs) Usually, they are doing squats to, you know, make my legs bigger. Um, And simply, like, from real-world evidence, and I know that it's not scientific evidence, but in my opinion, for someone who's, like, in the the trenches, it's as valuable as science, if you wish. Um, Yeah. I can just look like the people who don't have legs, when I see them squat, inevitably they don't load their quads, like they sit back a ton, very little knee forward travel. Um, When I put them on a hack, like I've seen this with people who, um, I've like legit, I was training a couple of weeks ago, I guess months ago by this point, I was training with someone who like squats three plates. Uh, on a barber squat and he, he he sits back a ton and we were doing the Atlantis pendulum hack uh, Atlantis pendulum squat I don't know if you used it but it's a really nasty one you can load your quads very well and I think he he was using like 30 kilos and he was like done and I see the same with people when I put them on a hack or, an ex- or a leg press with like feet low something that sort of puts them in a more fixed position and they are sort of forced to use their quads, inevitably we tend to find out that their quads are really, really weak. And uh, I don't think it's really just a simple correlation or it has nothing to do with the fact that uh, their quads are also usually a weak point. And uh, in the opposite direction, I tend to notice the same people who have big quads usually tend to squat really deep, uh, mostly upright, and they are also able to use a lot of load uh, on something like a hex squat where it really challenges the, the quads. So I think that's as much of an evidence as uh, the scientific papers we were referencing. Yeah, and I think it's always important to come back to the fact that, right, when, when you're dealing with those types of people, um, for example, people who have developed really big quads from just like squatting nice and upright and doing a particular hex squat variation or whatever, um they're often self-selected for that. Like a good example of that would be someone like Mike Isretel. Um, Like he's got gigantic quads. When you see him squat, it's like, wow, this is like really impressive. You're so upright. It's also ridiculously strong. But we can't necessarily assume that someone 
someone else like me or you who might be built differently is going to be able to replicate that um, even if we do use something like weightlifting shoes. So when, when looking at like, all right, how could we extract evidence from these real, real world examples, we all, always have to ask, right, what is this person's anthropometry? Like how is their body built up? And, and how is that manifesting in the way that they interact with that exercise, you could say? Um, and then like what we're essentially trying to do when we talk about things like heel elevations and stuff, we're trying to quote unquote artificially replicate having like diff- different mechanics to some degree um, or different anthropometry. Like we're trying to do something to modify things in our favor. And I think that's a fairly reasonable suggestion because we can't just say, right, Sotek, I'm actually going to cut off the middle four inches of your femur so you can get them squats in, bro. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And that's where heel elevation comes in. Um, obviously, not everyone can squat hip, uh, the same way. Not everyone can squat like... Uh, without any shoes or just flat sword um, very upright but I find that heel elevation tends to at least sear the things in the right direction if you wish so I still like to use it as a tool in the toolbox and um, and uh, past a certain point like where do you think the point is and just to this is the last uh, question about this where do you think the, the point is like we have these sort of um rubber stuff that we basically uh, put on the floor so you know mm. we don't we when we drop the, drop the dumbbell or something we don't damage the dumbbells but we also have a couple of pieces left and i use that because we don't have like fancy stuff like prime wedges so i my for myself i use my weightlifting shoes and one of those for clients who squat barefoot and want a more upright squat i usually use one or two and the most extreme I have used is like three but that's a really extreme case i had a girl who was really really uh, not built to squat at least in a barefoot fashion so we use three of those and i think that gives you like you know you seen the prime wedges i think yeah, that would be similar huge. to like their 45 degree wedge so they have i think they have like 10 10 or maybe the 30 degree i don't know but basically the most extreme one they offer like they have three i think uh, three particular uh, angles or degrees of elevation depending on on your needs and I think the one I'm using or the setup I used would be similar to their um, the steepest one basically like where do you think the cutoff point is like obviously we don't want to use like four inches of heel elevation <laughs> to to get into a deep squat yeah like I think like there comes there comes a point when you start to elevate the heels where you're actually unable to even distribute your weight evenly throughout your foot. Um, so for me, like that's where things mm-hmm. start to get a little bit problematic because what you want to be able to do is like spread your weight evenly on the ground, have a really stable base so that you can produce a lot of force. Um, what tends to happen when people elevate the heels a bit too much, especially if it's just the heel, like using rubber, rubber matting like you are talking about, is you get people shifting weight more so onto the balls of their feet. So they're essentially balancing on their forefoot. <laughs> you know, they're essentially just balancing there. And your ability to produce force actually ends up being diminished because you're you you've almost got an unstable base. It's like trying to squat on your tippy toes. So for me, like I think like a little bit higher than a standard uh, Nike Romelio um weightlifting shoe is about as high as I'd go. Like some of the prime wedges or some of the wedges in general that you see out there. I think they can be a bit too much, but at the same time, it's like, it's about asking like what your goal is. You know, if you're just, if you're just squatting as a kind of a casual trainee, you want to build a bit of muscle, you want it to be comfortable and you enjoy squatting with a wedge. I don't think, 
think there's much of a problem with that. Um, if you're trying to like really maximize strength outcomes, I think you want to make sure that you have as, as much stability as you can. And if your ability to stand on the wedge is a limiting factor, I, I don't think that's generally a good idea. Um, so yeah, I, I would, there, there's no hard cut off for me. So what I would use as a rule of thumb is like, do you, do you feel stable on your feet? Like, are you feeling like you're, you're comfortable, like you're in place, like you're not going to fall over <laughs> is holding the bar a challenge. Uh, and if you find that a lot of your weight is just shifting to the front of your foot and it's almost like you're squatting like a, a on your tippy toes, um, I consider that to be a bit too much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, look them up. So basically they have six, they start from five degrees up until 30. So I was off by a two, four margin, but it's okay. <laughs> so I think, yeah, I think they're, the 30 degree was most extreme and um the five like that's the smallest one is barely noticeable and i think somewhere in between like i would agree with you like the standard weightlifting shoe has a 0.75 inch heel raise so i think uh, maybe another half an inch so like 1.25 that would be sort of the the limit so I think, uh, so I have the weight lift from like a Sabo, I think, or power lift, sorry, the Sabo power lift shoes. Those are the same 0.75. And then with the the extra wedge, I think I have maybe a one inch heel elevation, but I can squat barefoot as well. It's just not the squat I like. I have to put my feet wider and I have to lean a bit more forward. But it's not the question of, can or cannot is a question of um want or <laughs> don't want basically all right so let's move on from the ankles uh, let's start going upwards towards the torso and let's talk about the spine um let's start like with the lower back and because that's something that's uh um that's again very uh disputed topic uh there Stu mcgill has this interesting concept of a stiff versus mobile spine and he was saying that basically you know if you want to be strong or if you want to be the strongest you can i hope i'm not mis quoting him that you should not really do much uh, spinal flexion under load uh, not even sit-ups that sort of stuff you just want uh, exercises that basically learn or teach you to keep your spine still or stiff like even uh for abs you would much better off doing like planks instead of a crunch to use an example like do you think that that the spine is really not meant to flex under load um i seem to recall like he referencing a number of i think this was done on like animal big spines or something like that that passed a certain point basically I don't know if it's a good analogy, but I guess it would be something like those foldable phones from Samsung that they have a particular... Um, so this is the traditional model that you have a particular number of flexes uh, you can tolerate until the s- things start going sideways. Um, and I know you have a very good... Uh, you had some points about our biological system not being the same as mechanical systems which was phone would be for example like can you address this issue a bit yeah so like obviously like Stuart McGill has contributed a lot of like valuable insights about you know spine mechanics and stuff like that but but one of the the big problems with um 
some of his his theories and some of the way that people put his theories into practice is that um, he's essentially taking mechanistic insights from spines like I think a lot of his studies aren't like pig spines um, but spines that are dead like fundamentally um, taking insights from spines that are dead and then trying to extrapolate that out to the pain experience or performance of a real life human and there might be some merit in that as in you know for example it's it's cool to see you know all right, what happens in the intervertebral disc when a certain force is placed on the spine? Like, that's interesting. But we can't necessarily like generalize that out to real-world individuals with living biological systems because that is the key distinction between humans and machines is that we have the potential to adapt to the stressors that we're exposed to, you know? So it's not just muscle, it's also connective tissue. Um, so bone, ligament, tendon, um intervertebral discs even what we see is that when we are exposed to load those tissues can actually adapt and strengthen um, you see it in the the ACL you know for example um, so when we're when we're, t when we're talking about these different ligaments and we are, and and bones and tendons etc we consider them to be vulnerable when put under load you could also adopt the perspective that when we place these tissues under load they actually have the potential to adapt and that has potentially beneficial um, implications down the line because we're now more resilient to stressors that we're going to be exposed to so i'm personally more of that that camp of being optimistic about what loading can do for the human body whereas i would say that a lot of the or at least the way that people put some of Stuart McGill's theories into practice is that they end up quite pessimistic about um, what the human body can tolerate and its potential to adapt and they there's sort of this perspective that you know you don't want to take your spine into flexion and you don't want to do it regularly because you're going to you know wear down the disc and you're going to give your disc uh, you're going to degenerate your disc and end up with disc herniation and pain etc etc and like there's quite a leap there from that mechanistic sort of you know like lab-based evidence and real world outcomes so that would be like the first issue um, in terms of whether or not we should flex under load i think that's a more complicated discussion and we have to always recognize the limits of our knowledge in this plate in this case so what i would say is that for the everyday person picking things up off the floor you know just going about their life you probably don't need to stress too much about you know the position of your spine as in like if you're sitting there and you're worried about really staying upright i wouldn't be worried about that i don't think that's going to be a problem that would be very contrary to the beliefs of um, Stuart McGill and people who implement his theories. So I would not um, be of the belief that you need to maintain a straight spine or a neutral spine at all points. Um, I think flexion is perfectly fine. It's a normal physiological movement and picking like bending down to pick up a pen or pick up your bag with a, with a rounded back is not a problem. Okay. That's not something I would be concerned about. But when we come to actual performance, I think things get, get, a little bit harder to tease out okay so the key point here is that we do not have evidence to show that when people deadlift or squat with a bit of, with some spinal flexion um that it increases their risk of injury we just don't have that evidence so what we're left with is certain extrapolations from like like those studies i was talking about with, with Stuart mcgill we're left with extrapolations from that um and, and biological plausibility for that to potentially be something we should be thinking about, but we just don't really know. So my current, my current stance on that would be that, like, 
you should be trying to maintain a neutral spine during your lifts for sure, not just because there's a potential tie to injury or pain, but mostly because it's generally better for performance. So you don't want your spine to be flailing around the place and moving into flexion and extension um, during any sort of lift like a deadlift or a squat because the desire is for that torso to be as stiff as possible so that you can move efficiently and lift as much weight as possible. So it almost ends up being a case of like for performance, trying to maintain a flex or a neutral spine as much as possible is probably a good idea. Um, whether or not, whether or not, and the extent to which there is a difference in injury risk between a certain amount of flexion um, and a quote unquote neutral spine, like that's a question that's yet to be answered. What we see is that in most cases where people appear to have a neutral spine during lifting, they're actually still in a flexed position. So that it's not actually quote unquote neutral. It's still a relative flexion. So what we know is that people are flexing pretty much like most of the time when they are lifting already. Um, we don't know at what point that might increase risk of injury or if it will at all. Um, but we do know that trying to... Um, trying to resist moving into flexion during lifting is good for performance. So it ends up being a case of, okay, well, we're sort of unsure. There's a lot of unknowns, but trying to maintain a neutral spine and bracing hard is going to be a good idea anyway. You know, so you don't come out the other end thinking, oh, everyone should deadlift with a rounded back. You know, that's not the case. But what we also don't come out thinking is that if someone does round their back a little bit on a deadlift, that we all freak out because that, that, the, you'd have to have more evidence to actually conclude that. So so yeah, that would be most of where I stand at the moment. I know there are some studies being carried out. I don't think it's come out yet. I can't remember who the author was, but some studies were showing the difference between what happens in the spine when we're like, f like what, what would be called like flexion relaxation and, and being in flexion with the intent to keep the spine braced and to move into extension because they're key differences. Like if you were to, if you were to, get into a flex position but you're still braced and you've got the intents to extend against the weight like you would be in a squat or deadlift we can't assume that the mechanics of that are the same as when someone is just you know hanging in flexion like you do see some de deadlift videos like that where they're just hanging there and kind of just hinging the way up gradually i don't think the outcomes are going to be the same in that case so there are some unknowns for sure yeah so i guess the the major takeaway is that what we see visually, what we consider to be uh, an extended spine or neutral spine is not really, but we should aim like for the sake of performance and simply being able to lift the most efficiently is what we, we to aim like what we consider visually to be a neutral spine, but not, do not really worry about the particular position and rather accept or accept accept a range of of spinal positions that we find uh, fi we find acceptable you know within the the margins of, of error so to speak so i think this is this this sort of applies to all execution like i had this discussion with nick love like a couple of weeks ago that honestly objective scale like anything between like a seven and the we're not going to get a 10, but 7 and a 9 is probably good. So you don't want to get so hung up on, you know, keeping everything perfectly neutral and in a straight line. And that's something I also want to cover if you have the time. Like, you know, 
some people say that you when viewed from the side your neck and your it basically should be like a straight line and there should be no no protrusion or whatever so no nothing should interrupt that straight line um but also we shouldn't just allow any sort of a form like a scared you know those dream fell compilation where someone looks basically like an inverted u shape like their back looks like an inverted u shape that's yeah. probably not really the best either probably not the best yeah <laughs> going up on the spine like the cervical region and this cervical extension during squats or deadlifts uh, there was this big debate between a particular individual and luke i guess <laughs> luke hoffman about uh you know looking up and um shutting off the glutes during a deadlift if you look up and basically um you know queuing looking down or having a neutral neck um in order to achieve better glute activation i guess and reduce injury risk and that sort of stuff and this individual used um was saying that if you don't keep your cervical spine neutral that that if you start looking up then automatically that also means that the rest of your spine is going to uh, flex as well and that's not something we want so is that really true like should we just cue looking down during the squats and that's and if you don't mind like i will just go like before you answer i will give my yeah, opinion which is that uh some like <laughs> i'm sure you've seen this like there are some people like you look at them and you're like ah that's not that's way too much i know that people who basically like look in the in the mirror but also upwards and they try to do their lift and they like there's a huge huge deviation on the spine like the back is in this direction and this their neck is almost perpendicular to the <laughs> rest of the spine like they almost look up towards the ceiling like that's extreme but I also don't like to cue well on some exercises, but I think it's mostly just a matter of preference. But um, I also don't just panic if someone is not tucked or their neck isn't tucked. I like to cue sort of looking a bit downward or in front of you. This claim has actually been around for for a long time that um, cervical, cervical extension, quote-unquote, inhibits the glutes. Um, it's not a new thing by any means. Um, and it's something that made sense to me. Um, in the past um, but it's one of those things where like like citation needed as in we we can't just you like we can't just make claims that like moving one joint inhibits another joint unless we have a very clear understanding as to why that would be the case now to play devil's advocate like one case where this where this might be important is I think you kind of alluded to it where for example someone someone is about to squat um, and their whole intention, you do see this in some beginners, their whole intention is just to extend their spine. So they're looking up, they're arching their back really hard. They're not actually bracing the way me or you might, um, might tell someone to brace. So they're just focusing on the back. And then what that can end, what that ends up doing is that when you start a squat in a position where you've got loads of extension, then you're also in an anterior pelvic tilt. And that takes away some of the hip flexion range that you actually have available. So what can happen then as you come down to the bottom of that squat, you, you've sort of already tightened up everything and you run out of hip flexion range of motion. So you move into more spinal flexion and you sort of lose your tightness and it, it can just be a little bit messy. 
So in that case, I can see the argument for, um, all right, let's try and get that person to focus a little bit more on what it feels like to have a straight line. Um, one of the typical ways that someone might do that is like, you know, when you're coaching a deadlift and you use the whole, the old uh, broomstick um, at your back, like that's the classic one, <laughs> you know, so that's giving a person a sensation of like, all right, this is what it feels to have your spine more or less straight. Now, this is what I want you to do. I want you to take a deep breath. I want you to brace all around your your quote unquote core or abdomen. I want you to brace hard there, and that's what I want what I want you to to get a feel for. I think there's merit in that. Like I think you can make a strong case for like that individual who's extending loads to like all right, that's probably not the best idea. In another case where let's say someone is squatting, they have no particular problems that they're reporting, and they happen to look up and find that that helps them. Can we conclu conclude that that's harmful for that person in any way from the perspective of, I don't know, glute development or strength or anything? No, absolutely not. I don't think we have any evidence to be able to make that claim. Um, and I think we have enough enough real world evidence to show that like people squat in countless different ways. Like if you look at Olympic weightlifters, like one of the things that they always exhibit is like looking up like most of them will look up a lot of the time you see it in lots of elite powerlifters like they're looking up all of the time so you see this variation in individuals like the opposite end of the spectrum would be um like mac ripito the way he would typically teach the squat or at least classically as far as i'm aware is like looking down pretty much you know that's 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 pretty much the way he would cue it a lot of the time is like looking down um out in front of you and like to be honest I do actually kind of like personally I like looking slightly down like I find that it helps me I don't feel comfortable when I'm when I'm looking up but I can't necessarily say that because that's my experience that that's the same for other individuals so what I would say is that there's many many different ways that you could potentially execute a squat and I'm not I would be I would need a lot of I would need strong evidence or a very good reason to tell someone that you, oh no, you shouldn't look up or extend your cervical spine at all because that's going to lead to your glutes shutting off or some sort of other negative effect. I just, I don't see how you could make that claim with the evidence that we have available. Once again, like the real world evidence as far as results, records, heaviest weights lifted doesn't doesn't really support this. Like I was, I was having this discussion with the whole team of, of these guys who are promoting this. Like, look at weightlifters, every single one of them, like the Chinese for sure. When they start getting into that sticking point during the squat, what they do? They try to bring their hips back underneath the bar and they sort of look up and push their chest up towards the bar. That's that's what they do. Like, again, during the deadlift, so many, especially the sumo deadlifters, they look straight ahead and when they lock out, I don't know if you've seen Bryce Lewis does the same. When they lock out, they look up. So it's the complete opposite. If if the glutes really were that much stronger, that much more active in quotation marks, why would they do that? Like, I don't see any any reason to do so. And as far as looking down, you know, I really like Sebastian Urup, the Australian strength coach. He said, he said this many times that the only time you should look down during a squat is if you want to end up there. And obviously he's talking about an extreme, like looking down towards your feet or whatever. You probably look just a slightly downward, which is, is just fine. But I, I I think the same, like I have the same, um, I have the same experience for what it's worth that if I start looking down, my sort of my whole 
torso just follows and I end up my hips end up shooting back and my bar the bar starts going forward towards my neck and that's not really something I want whereas if I start if, whereas if I look ahead that's sort of my torso as well just stays more upright yeah and I mean like the, as far as I'm aware like we only have we only have one study that has actually specifically assessed this like the direction of of gaze is what they refer to it as, you know, so the direction that you're actually looking, the position of your spine um, tends tends to follow that. And like the only thing we have to suggest to, to, to go along with that is that by looking upright tends to do exactly as you, as you suggested and help you stay more upright and looking down tends to lead to you pretty much going down and being more, more flexed in some sense. So if that is happening and that's desirable, like for example, if we make the case that, um, squatting while looking down um, is going to increase your hip flexion and you're not going to be able to stay as upright then maybe in this case we could say oh actually that might lead to the glutes doing a little bit more work than they otherwise would if you were upright like maybe like there's, there's some difference there that's happening so but what I would not be focused on is specifically the neck position I'd be focused specifically on what position the rest of the body is in um, and how we can actually modify that like if you're trying to stay more upright and looking up helps you then that would seem to be a fairly valuable intervention for you. Um, and I don't think you need to be worried that that is going to be harmful at all. It's funny. I, I think, and another thing that I notice is, uh, when, especially whenever I get new clients who come from someone who they worked previously, like so many people are being taught that, you know, extend, 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 that they get into extreme extension and they basically don't brace at all because you can't, because... Uh, you know it as well, like if you want to brace, you have to bring your ribs down sort of, and they basically extend so much that their ribs are just flared, and the, they have this other opposite extreme, especially women do that, and like you said yourself, that just simply does not facilitate a deep squat, because you simply run out of hip uh, or flexion, range of motion, far, far sooner than you would, um, than uh, knee flexion or ankle uh, was that ankle forward travel and uh, yeah, I think there was a fraction there you go my my mind doesn't really work today <laughs> this can be just a life lesson like balance in everything as much as possible be try being somewhere in the middle like do not we do not really want extreme extension extreme flexion um, we want stability and uh, and I will have to link in the description. Chris Duffin has this video. I'm sure you've seen it because he shares it every now and again. This open scissor versus closed scissors is a fantastic way to illustrate a point to many clients. I used it lots of times. Uh, especially women tend to tend to extend a lot. Not just them, but uh, from what I notice, women specifically, they tend to extend uh, exaggeratedly. And that is a very helpful visualization to get the point across. Because if you tell a beginner to brace, especially if I tell them in Romanian, just it doesn't really get the point across. So a visual uh, representation is much more helpful. All right, so I think that covers it for today. I am really uh, grateful for you giving up your time. And um, perhaps now is the time to let people know anything you would consider plugging here, like uh, your triage militia, which uh, 
I guess, you know, I wanted to tell you this in the beginning that you have been so preoccupied with science and stuff that obviously you forgot to take business lessons because releasing the entire archive you have there on your website for free is not really a very productive business idea, but it's incredible. <laughs> um, yeah, so so uh, like as just like we did, we barely even discussed my name at the beginning. But for those for those who aren't aware, yeah, my I'm I'm the co-owner of a business called Triage Method. Um, our goal is is fundamentally to help um, individuals and tra- trainees and personal trainers to level up. And um, that's fundamentally like what we try and do through coaching and through education. So if you're interested in our coaching services, yeah, like, yeah, we do have online one-to-one and group coaching services available. But the, the thing that I would push you to engage with first would be the actual educational resources that we put out as Sotak alluded, alluded to. We have a, like so many articles on our website that take you through um, some core topics in a logical um, manner, you know, and, and that, that like one thing follows, the other thing follows the other thing. And I think that's a useful way of approaching your education um, because I think most personal trainers um, and people who get into exercise and nutrition, etc., they learn things in a very disjointed manner and it's all these kind of sound bites. So what we're trying to achieve over time, it'll take years and years and years, is to basically put together a curriculum that's just there that people can follow. Um, so check out those those articles. We've also got the Triage Method podcast, you know, available on all platforms. And yeah, just basically follow Triage Method on all social media and you'll see exactly what we're up to. So that 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 would be my cheeky sales pitch incredible just incredible value i have a friend who who is trains at my gym and he started following you uh somewhat recently and he is incredibly incredibly impressed by your your content so um like i said just anyone who is interested in this sort of stuff has to be a fool to not to not uh, engage with your content is incredibly well put and uh, this guy was he studies for medicine he he wants to go into medicine medical school next year and he was saying that your articles are much more helpful than the textbooks he's studying studying from so that's <laughs> that's already tells you a lot about uh, yeah, yeah, yeah that already gives people a, a very nice uh preview of the kind of content you have over there all right so thanks again and uh go follow Gary on, on, on Instagram because he recently started doing some well, impressive for me probably not so impressive physical feats for him but nonetheless he he's, he started, like, he, he not just says things like, you know, we should be well-rounded and try to make yourself more anti-fragile if you wish, he also embraces this uh, philosophy, so Go follow him on Instagram. I think that's important, though. I think I think the most important thing anyone can do that's interested in in bettering themselves and thinking about what it means to better yourself is to act out your philosophy, like embody it. Like that is the best thing you can try and do, not just for yourself but for the people around you as well. So that's what I try and do. So it's good that you've pointed it out. Thank you. <laughs> All right. So that was episode. 39 of the Muscle Engineer Podcast with Gary McGowan. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you find it valuable, helpful, all that good stuff. Now, as usual, I want to end the episode with a little bit of a recap and leave you guys with some of my top takeaways from this episode. 
So the first major takeaway is the opportunity cost of uh, any of these interventions you're considering or you might be looking at something like, you know, copying or foam rolling or some of the more expensive or fancy stuff, like, you know, like going to a chiropractor or getting those instrument-assisted release techniques, whatever they call that can keep up with them. Um, and what do I mean by opportunity cost? Well, there is time. So, for example, with something like foam roller, like, yeah, you foam roll, but uh, that obviously takes up time. And let's say you only have an hour to train. And let's say you foam roll uh, 15 minutes. What else could you have done with those 15 minutes? Right? So, you, you must consider this. Now, if you go to someone, to a quote-unquote expert or a professional Obviously, that uh, involves another cost, which is a financial one. So you also must look at uh, the money you're you're spending there. Like, let's say you spend, I don't know, $50 or 50 euros or whatever per session, which is probably not unreasonable. Let's say you do that two times a week. Let's say you do that for a month. That's already like, what, $400? Like, what else could you have done with those $400 or €400? Like, you know, that's quite a lot of money. Like, that's the salary over here in Romania. You know, whenever people bring up these interventions, they act like somehow they're neutral or they have no drawbacks. And in fact, they do. And they have, like I just illustrated here, they have very obvious and clear drawbacks or at least other sides that you must consider now. Uh, like we discussed with Gary, if you go into it, uh, being basically aware of what you're getting yourself into, what you're getting, and you're fine with the financial investment, that's awesome. Just, you know, think about what else could you have done with that time or with that money, which could have perhaps yielded a better outcome. The second uh, takeaway is the distinction between something being necessary something being beneficial because it seems to me that it's lost on many people like you know even Menno has this uh, whole spiel of oh you know squat rules are not necessary and I agree they are not but you know what else is not necessary a gym you know what else is not necessary a phone an Instagram account you know it's not necessary we can live without them well it's not like we want to in the first place and not like they can't bring us some benefits and that's the way i view squat shoes as well are they necessary no can they be beneficial for some people or i would argue for a lot of people i think so point number three is um around the spine in general or i guess lifting technique in general like positioning or setup and um I think I had a bit of a shift in thinking in the last couple of months when it comes to this. Um, I became a bit of a execution fanatic, I guess, uh, for a while. And now I think I, I am finding myself, you know, sliding back into the middle. So when it comes to spinal positioning, for example, like let's say during deadlifts, like instead of looking at an arbitrary good positioning, I think it's better to view it as a range of acceptable techniques or a range of acceptable degrees of 
spinal flexion or extension, whatever you want to call it, because I think Gary even mentioned in the episode that what we view as neutral is, in fact, slight flexion. So <laughs> there is that old joke, like, I think it's it goes like, how does child abuse look like? And I'll know it when I see it. I think it's the same way with uh, good technique or bad technique, like how does a bad setup look for deadlifts, for example? How does a bad spinal positioning? I know it when I see it. So, you know, as long as someone is not exaggerately being in flexion or exaggerately being in a in an extension, I think it's fine. We don't have to dogmatize it or get into this black and white extremist thinking that oh my goodness, there is a slight flexion at your at your cervical spine or extension or whatever, and now your glutes are shut off or your back is going to fold into two. It's it's not that way. And if you look at most pullers, like, you know, once weights get heavy, uh, you can't keep the same positioning as you would with, like, a warm-up weight. Like, if you're pulling 300 kilos, it not, it's not going to look the same as if you're pulling 60. I'm sorry, but it's just not. So always strive to maintain your best technique, but be aware and accept the idea that some quote-unquote deviation from the standard you have in your mind is going to happen um, once weights get actually challenging enough and that's probably fine. So I think that will be all for today. Thank you again for listening. If you enjoyed these episodes, please share them with a friend, leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get these podcasts from, you know, uh, share it on your Instagram story, Tag me uh, if you do. And until the next one, take care.